Hi, I'm the Space Quest Historian, and we're up to the fifth game in the King's Quest series. If you're just catching up, let me briefly recap you. Last time we left Daddy Graham wide-eyed and drugged up to the nines on some weird magic fruit that his daughter brought back from the land of winged high school lunchroom dramas, and it seems to have done wonders for him. I mean, look at those biceps! It is a true testament to the wonders of unimpugned totalitarian monarchy that someone like Graham can be allowed to remain in power and have enough time left in his day to get this physically ripped. I mean, it's good to see that he's on the mend, too. I mean, before this, he was just coming out of a nearly two-decade-long depression following the disappearance of his son and his complete inability to find him, despite having a bottomless chest of endless bribe money, coupled with his equally startling inability to do anything about a single three-headed dragon that he for some reason allowed to terrorize and lay ruin to his once prosperous kingdom, other than to give up his only other offspring to it as a lunch option, despite having in his possession a magic shield that could purportedly withstand anything, so it is fair to assume that the ensuing heart attack was not so much brought on by overexertion at his non-existent attempts to overcome these obstacles as it must have been from an absolute overabundant reliance on psychotropic substances to distract him from the fact that he's an utter failure as a king, father, warrior, and human being. And if you just stalled at the drug abuse accusation, then allow me to refresh your memory of our adventures in Kalima in King's Quest II, where we ended things by riding a surprisingly well-articulate fish creature across a purple sea to escort a woman he claims to have seen in a magic mirror to a wedding attended entirely by figments of his imagination. I think it's safe to say that Graham here is no stranger to the mind-warping wonders and splendors that come with the prolonged catastrophic abuse of hallucinogens. Case in point, he's talking to an owl now. Under normal circumstances, you want to put this guy in immediate emergency psychiatric care, but this is par for the course when it comes to the adult mind of the Daventry monarch. He's not even batting an eye at this. Of course, he has also just lost his castle and his entire family with it, but given his propensity for high-octane drug use, I'm sure at this stage he's probably still thinking he just momentarily forgot where he lives. The owl, wearing a sweet vest and a monocle and answering to the name of Cedric, explains to Graham that he's not just imagining things. His castle did in fact disappear, and it was, to no one's surprise, the work of an asshole wizard. Now, Graham has had his share of run-ins with asshole wizards before. In fact, pretty much every wizard he's ever met has been a bit of an asshole. This one paralyzed him. This one turned him into a frog. This one stole his kid. The castle-stealing asshole wizard in question is named Mordak, and he's apparently even more of an asshole than any of the other wizards we've met up until now combined. So it is indeed very much surprising when Graham is told that Cedric is employed by another wizard that he doesn't just lob the first heavy object within reaching distance at him. Perhaps it's because the owl offers to help by dousing him with fairy dust, which Graham probably assumes is owl speak for some illicit substance. Imagine his surprise, then, when he suddenly finds himself airborne and following this feathery prick across international borders, only to narrowly miss a spine-breaking death by falling into the small river instead of straight onto the hard ground. Well, it's a good thing Cedric didn't take a small detour or got lost along the way, or they'd be scraping Graham's impossibly well-defined abs off the cobblestone with a spatula. Cedric's employer, the wizard Crispin, explains that Mordag is evil, which we already knew. He then offers Graham a slice of white snake, which Graham, being the drugged-out old bastard that he is, immediately eats before asking what it is. Crispin also gives him his old magic wand, which he admits is useless before launching into an unprompted and fairly creepy metaphor about treating wands as pets that I didn't need and didn't ask for. And after that, it's off you, scoot me old son, go have fun. 
First of all, this white snake. Let's just get this out of the way. This is so Graham can talk to animals. Now, in King's Quest 3, Alexander baked up a batch of dough and stuck it in his ears, Babelfish style. And I'll bet he's walking around feeling like a bit of a loser when he finds out you can just eat white snake instead and achieve the same effect without your ears smelling like a hideous yeast experiment gone wrong. It does beg the question, though, how long does this white snake deal last? Is it permanent, or does the effect wear off at Graham's next bowel movement? What happens if you stick dough in your ears and eat white snake at the same time? What happens if you roll a piece of white snake in the dough and then stick it up your ass like a suppository? I only ask because it doesn't seem to be working very well. See the snake blocking the path up the mountains? Yeah, he's not talking. So fat lot of good that did us. He's just there being a dick. And yes, this is the famous clip of Cedric saying, Graham, watch out! A poison snake! And I've been making fun of this little bit since my King's Quest 2 video because I was convinced Roberta kept calling snakes poisonous because she didn't know the difference between poisonous and venomous. And I was really looking forward to getting to this bit so the whole thing could finally pay off and... Well, I hope you're sitting down for this because I'm about to tell you something that will hit you like a freight train. If you look at the snake, the narrator correctly describes the snake as venomous. So Cedric is an idiot and thinks it's poisonous, but the game actually knows better. So fuck it. I guess somewhere between 4 and 5. Someone must have pulled Roberta aside and gone, you know, if you're gonna keep putting snakes in your games for some strange fucking reason, maybe you should at least read up on how they work. So fine, you win this one, King's Quest V. Okay, let's just get the plot out of the way quickly, because there really isn't much to talk about here, except for the ending, because that really pisses me off, but I'll get to that in a bit. Now, Graham pisses about town for a bit, then goes to see a fortune teller, and is told that the reason Mordak kidnapped your family is because his brother is Mananananananananan, the asshole wizard from the third game, who's now a cat, and apparently that's the worst thing that can happen to anyone. And he shrunk your castle and your family down to action figure size, and plans to feed them to Manny the kitty cat, unless Alexander turns him back, which, of course, Alexander, being the fetid little shit stain that he is, would be completely unable to even if he was his normal size. Which I would assume he would have to be, given that the last time he piddled around with magic stuff, it was like a Satanist cooking show. Boil this, knead that, burn this, stick this in your ear. It was like if Rachel Ray had gone Wiccan and also lost her mind. And Alexander even has the fucking gall to say that he accidentally turned Manny into a cat. Fuck you, Alex. You know how long I spent walking up and down this fucking cliffside getting ingredients for your little accidents? How about you lick every conceivable crevice of my ass? Anyway, here's why going up the mountains to find Mordak's castle is a terrible idea. It's a fucking suicide mission. Once we jazzercise the snake off the path with a little tambourine action, off we fuck up the mountain, back down again, across the ocean, and there's Morty's castle. Lovely place. I don't, I don't know if he's ever considered opening up a bed and breakfast here, but uh, it's, it's some prime fucking real estate. Anyway, we sneak inside, resist the urge to play with his organ, or climb in bed with him while he's taking a nap in his frankly ostentatious looking bed, steal his wand, use that to recharge the shitty useless wand that we got from Crispin, and then play a lovely little game of guess who before he turns into fire, which we then put out by summoning a bit of drizzle. At this point, Graham realizes he may have screwed the pooch by murdering the only guy around who could change his family back to normal, but luckily Crispin shows up in what can only be described as the most contrived and lazy deus ex machina moment in the history of fiction, and suddenly makes everything alright again. Okay, back the fuck up. What the hell? Th this is the part that pisses me off. Does this mean that this entire time, Crispin had the power to teleport straight into Mordak's castle all along? 
Why didn't he tell us this back at his fucking house at the start of the game? And why did he send us off on this suicide run in the first place if he was going to go out and ask around and do research on how to turn everything back to normal instead of freezing to death, falling off cliff faces, drowning in the ocean, and being gang-fucked by this flying nudist colony? We could have been chilling out near this cozy river town, eating custard pies and watching this dude in the spiffy shorts try on every single item of clothing in the store for about five hours, or listening to the shoemaker machine gun a pair of clocks to death. Nothing we did in this entire game mattered in even the slightest bit, so why send us out on this obvious suicide mission if you're just gonna take care of everything yourself anyway? Thanks a lot, you old geezer. Next time you want someone out of your hair, just say you need an hour or two alone. Don't send them off to get eaten alive by wolves or get violated by mountain yetis. Oh, and if you're wondering who this woman next to Graham is, that's Princess Cosima. She's here because, in addition to being a castle-napping douchebag with a peculiar affinity for the word swine, Mordak is also a grade-A level 100 incel who can't get a date. So he kidnapped Princess Cosima and told her to pucker up and marry him or scrub the floor. And she told him to spin on it, so here she is, scrubbing the floor. Of course, Prince Alexander being, as previously mentioned, the world's biggest shitheel and displaying a catastrophic inability to read the room, ignores everyone telling him that all of this mess is entirely his fault, which it is, and instead chooses to spring a massive boner over Princess Cosima and, dude, fucking get up, you're embarrassing yourself, come on. Meanwhile, Rosella over here is shooting daggers at Cosima for reasons that aren't entirely clear, but maybe there was more to this incest angle in King's Quest III than they let on. Anyway, so that's the gist of it. Now, I skipped over a fairly hefty chunk of the game, believe it or not, and that's because none of it has any bearing whatsoever on the plot. Everything else in this game is just a series of detours and weird puzzle chains that serve no purpose other than to make you think you're actually accomplishing something, but what you're actually doing is pissing around in circles waiting for the game to dick you over again. Now, you'd think having a flagship product like King's Quest V that features state-of-the-art graphics and sound would perhaps incentivize you to make the game more accessible and friendly to newcomers. You would be absolutely dead wrong. In fact, this game not only repeats several of the borderline psychopathic design choices of previous game, it doubles down hard on them. There are so many dead man walking scenarios in this game, it's insane. It's like someone made a bet with Roberta that she couldn't possibly top the previous four games in terms of screwing the player over, so she was like, challenge accepted. There are more chances of getting yourself into an unwinnable state in this game than all the previous four games combined. Don't scare away this cat here, you're boned. Don't feed this bird, you're boned. Don't pick up this tiny little shard of crystal in this giant room full of otherwise unattainable crystals, you're boned. You don't pick up this tiny little pixel in the nest in the few seconds you have before the timer runs out and you're kicked off to the next screen, boned, boned, boned. And I'm not talking boned as in game over, I'm talking boned as in you'll still be playing the game for hours and hours until somewhere much later down the line you'll be unable to progress and there's no way to go back and do it over. You have no other choice but to restore an earlier game and in some cases just start all the way over from the beginning beginning, losing hours if not days of progress and try to work out just what the hell it is you're missing. And more often than not, you'll have no idea what the hell the game wants from you. This thing with the nest here, you have literally just a few seconds to do anything. The mouse cursor is changed into a crown, which I thought was a wait for this scene to finish playing icon, but no, that just means that walking is disabled. You can still use all the other icons. The thing it wants you to grab is literally a single pixel with a tiny little sparkle animation. This happens around midway in the game game. If you don't grab this and you get all the way to the end in Mordak's castle, Princess Cosima won't talk to you at all because apparently this is her gold locket. Fuck knows what it's doing in this nest or why Graham decides to carry it with him, that's never explained.
explain, but the fact of the matter is, you're boned. You have to somehow make a connection between a shimmering pixel in a bird's nest and a girl scrubbing the floor of a castle kitchen. Two events that happen several hours apart and are in no way related to each other, and your punishment for failing to do so is to have to go back and replay half the game. How about you get absolutely fucked? And this thing with the cat here is even worse, because it doesn't just expect you to have nearly clairvoyant foresight, it doesn't just expect you to be quick on the trigger, it expects you to be all of those things, AND it's on a random timer. This cat is chasing a rat whose survival you end up depending on, because without him you won't be able to get out of this basement. Don't ask why we're tied up and in a basement, apparently this is just something Graham really enjoys doing in his off time. Speaking of which, how are you doing down there, Graham? <laughs> Alright, I forgot, he can't talk. Not because I cut out his tongue or anything, I'm not a savage, I just cut the audio to his feed because he kept going on about how joke's on me, him and Valinus are into this shit, blah blah, you should see our dungeon, the dragon wasn't the only three-headed thing we had in Daventry. <laughs> anyway, in case you're wondering, the reason why he's down there and why I'm playing these games in the first place is because some stuff happened here at the start of 2021 that I won't bore you with right now. The point is, if you like these videos, then please go and have a look at my Patreon page at patreon.com slash basequesthistorian. When we hit 650 bucks a month, I'll play through and review all of Mask of Eternity in what I promise will be excruciating detail. And listen, thanks to everyone who have since made this year a lot more bearable by pitching in, and even just the ones who've just been watching these videos and leaving me comments about how much they enjoy them, that really means a lot to me, so thanks. Okay, enough smarm, let's get back to this rat shit. So, you need the rat to get out of this basement, but if you don't rescue him from this cat, then that'll never happen. You have to find this boot in an endless desert maze full of identical screens, which Graham just blindly walks into for no good goddamn reason, find your way back, then hang around this screen for however long it takes for the cat and rat to appear, and then quickly throw it at the cat in the few seconds you have to react, which, I stress, only happens randomly after a certain time has elapsed, and only happens once. Never again, just once. If you see the cat chasing the rat and you don't have the boot, you may as well start over. If you see the cat chasing the rat and don't throw the boot in time, you may as well start over. If you see the cat chasing the rat and don't know what the hell to do because throwing a boot you found in the desert at it makes just about as much sense as throwing a hairpin, a marionette, a tambourine, or any other fucking items you're carrying with you at it, including this other pair of fucking boots that you have, which the game won't let you, you may as well start over. Fuck this idiotic fucking puzzle right to fucking hell. Other things that can go to hell include this forest elf, this ungrateful emo willow tree, this yeti, this blue bitch, these other blue bitches, whatever the hell this blue fucking thing is supposed to be, this desert maze, this seawater maze, and especially this dungeon maze that totally fucks with your perspective because it's actually a first-person perspective maze, even though King Graham is still right there on the fucking screen, and this magic wand charging machine that for some reason runs on blue cheese. Seriously, I, this game doesn't even know what it wants to be. Is it a fairy tale? Is it a Disney cartoon? Is it a Marx Brothers routine? The tone is all over the place. One moment we're throwing a pie in a yeti's face and knocking him off a cliff, the next moment we've got enslavement and insinuated sexual assault. Don't come near me. I would never hurt you. I don't believe you. You're probably one of them. And these wolves are about to eat King Graham alive while he's on his knees, but then we trip up and knock this blue boy on his ass with a bag of peas like he's Wiley e. Coyote. And the graphics are gorgeous, but the set design is all over the place too. Is that the fucking icon of sin hanging over Mordak's upstairs landing? 
it's like someone told the artist to illustrate the Brothers Grimm, but then they changed their minds and added a bunch of slapstick at the last minute to soften things up a bit. I can't tell what tone we're going for here. It was weird enough in King's Quest IV when the night fell and you suddenly had zombies coming out of the ground, and yet somehow it didn't feel as weirdly out of place as it does here. Maybe I've just grown more used to the idea of King's Quest as a sadistic amalgamation of ripped-off fairy tales and death fetishism, so it's just weird for me when they start throwing Warner Brothers cartoon sound effects into the mix. And I could go on and on about the many ludicrous puzzles that make no goddamn fucking sense. Like this bit here where you dump a honeycomb over the pathway and throw diamonds at it, which for some ass-backwards reason causes an elf to appear that shows you the way out of this impossible forest maze. Or the absolute moon logic bullshit of the yeti and the custard pie, or this fucking cheese machine, or the RNG bullshit which plagues the last part of the game, where you can walk into a room and have a number of chance encounters. Some are outright lethal, like the villain just teleporting into the room and killing you. Some will cause the next encounter to be lethal, like this cat running off and warning the villain, causing him to teleport into the next room you visit and killing you. And some, like this blue boy here, who will toss you in a dungeon that you need to visit once, but never again, unless you want to get stuck in an unwinnable state forever. And sure, I could fill this video with hours of ranting about why these puzzles suck, but I'm still stuck on the sheer pointlessness of it all. Nothing you do in this game, and I mean nothing, amounts to any goddamn thing whatsoever. You give the shoemaker a pair of shoes that somehow allows him to retire forever in comfort, you return this golden heart that was stolen from this bawling botanical brat so she can turn back into a prissy princess, you find and return this golden hairpin that this tailor guy had lost, which G Graham, Graham, hello, Graham, hey. Hey, Graham, over here, Graham. Gra oh, what the fuck? Graham. Graham. Great mother of God. Oh, okay. Well, you do all of these things and none of it matters at all. None of what you do in this game has anything to do with actually rescuing your family. Graham is fucking useless, he's easily distracted, leaps headfirst into dangerous territories like endless deserts and impossible forest mazes without any regard for his safety and for absolutely no goddamn reason whatsoever. Come on, Cedric, there might be something important in here. Bullshit, Graham, there isn't. And you know there isn't. You don't have a plan, you never did. You're just wandering around in a perpetual stupor, looking for something to occupy your time with, pretending that you're on a quest to save your kingdom and your family, but all you're really doing is wasting time tobogganing down ice mountains and playing with snow monsters while someone else is off somewhere off screen doing the actual work for you. And let's talk about Cedric here for a minute, because I know that's what you're all dying to hear about. Cedric's legacy in gaming history is infamous. He became the poster boy for useless, annoying sidekicks, and not entirely undeservedly. In an adventure game, you typically want a sidekick that serves some kind of functional purpose. In Beneath the Steel Sky, you have Joey, who has a welding torch, and he can analyze inventory objects. In Sam and Max Hit the Road, you have Max, who can interact with the game world in some sort of obtuse, poorly defined way that the main protagonist can't. And the same goes for Toonstruck, where you can chuck flux here at things if you want to cause some wacky cartoon magic. Hell, the earliest example of a sidekick in an adventure game I can recall is this Commodore 64 game from 1986 called Murder on the Mississippi, where a small, stocky mutant follows you around with a notebook, taking meticulous dictation when interrogating suspects, and unhelpfully warning you about traps mere seconds before you take a knife to the face. Cedric is a different breed of sidekick entirely in that he doesn't do squats. He's beyond useless. He never does anything. He doesn't give you hints. He doesn't interact with the environment. He doesn't even provide any meaningful or amusing commentary on the situation. All he does is sit on the screen you're currently on, sometimes to tell you to get your ass moving if you've been standing around for too long, sometimes to tell you about obvious dangers. Woo, 
watch out for the bear, Graham. But mostly he just sits there in stoic silence, and when prompted, outright refuses to talk because the narrator says he isn't in the mood to talk right now. Well, get in the mood, you little feathery prick. The least you could do is warn me that this boat here has a huge gaping hole in it that'll cause it to sink if I don't plug it up, which I won't know until I've actually died from it once. I'm serious, you can look at this boat all you want, but you won't realize it's an instant death sentence until you've already tried taking it out once and drowned. Oh, now he tells me, and then he flies off. Good God. When he gets killed later in the game by these flying nudists, it's hard to feel any sympathy for him at all. Certainly not to the heart-wrenching extent the game seems to expect us to feel, and it is indeed extraordinarily tempting to just leave him there on the beach and let nature sort him out. Except you can't, because you need him alive at the end of the game so he can piss off and fly back to tell Crispin the game's nearly over and that he'd better teleport in and save the day. The reason I think most people find Cedric exceptionally objectionable is because of the voice they gave him in the CD-ROM talkie. And it is dreadful. The guy who voiced him, Richard Aronson, even said it was dreadful. He didn't want to sound like a prissy eight-year-old with a fake British accent that goes ooh a lot, but this is what he was told to do. This was back in the day when Sierra weren't sure if this whole CD-ROM thing would ever catch on, so they cut corners and decided to just hire their own staff as voice actors. Case in point, Richard was a programmer at Sierra who worked on the Sierra Network, which was sort of like Club Penguin in the dial-up but with no microtransactions and significantly fewer pedophiles. Other voice actors in the game include Laurie Cole, designer of Quest for Glory. I think I felt my heart melting. Just a little bit. This genie here is musician Mark Siebert. Now you spend the next 500 years in a bottle. And this rat is Roberta Williams. Maybe someday I'll be able to return the favor. No, I'm serious. That's her. The star of the show, of course, is Josh Mandel as King Graham. Josh was a producer at Sierra who did ghostwriting for pretty much every game you can think of, including writing pretty much all of the King's Quest 1 SCI remake and the Space Quest 1 VGA remake, not to mention the software store games in Space Quest 4, and oh yeah, he designed most of Space Quest 6 and Freddy Farkas' Frontier Pharmacist. And he's got a hell of a singing voice too, I mean, listen to this. Maybe you've even seen this fantastic video by the Reverend Scarecrow where he's playing a version of the game with all the voices screwed up, and since I probably won't get another chance to talk about this, I can just briefly tell you how it's done, because for years and years people have been wondering how this was done, and the explanation that Reverend Scarecrow gave didn't quite add up. If you run King's Quest, the DOS version, with the Windows CD in, for some reason it tries to pick up the audio from the Windows disc, what that ends up causing is all of these weird audio glitches. Since there was never any Windows-only version of King's Quest V released, some people have theorized that he had doctored the video to intentionally splice the wrong audio in, which he vehemently denied. It wasn't until late last year in 2020 that Sam Lawson on my Discord discovered that what had actually happened was, the good reverend had been running an installation of the original CD-ROM version, but with the Sierra Originals re-release in the drive. So every copy of King's Quest V that you can get on CD-ROM or on GOG or wherever is the same as the original CD-ROM that was released in 1992. Except this Sierra Originals re-release, which has all the audio recut and is laid out in a different order on the disc. The audio is also slightly clearer than in the original CD-ROM release, where it sounds like everyone has a goddamn lisp, although it's still not high def by any stretch of the imagination. Ooh, I suggest we visit the town first. How about it, Your Majesty? Ooh, I suggest we visit the town first. How about it, Your Majesty? Anyway, this mangled audio swap version is affectionately called King's Quits because every time the sound effect for this river starts playing, the help guy tells you to quit. 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 
No, I want to keep playing. Quit. I think it's the sound of water that's asking me to quit. And also, this is where we got the No More For Today name from when we did Stair Quest. That's because we couldn't stop pissing ourselves laughing at this bit. No more for today. Cedric, please, no! It cost one gold coin to see Mademushka. Okay, I think we're already knee-deep into the bonus round now, so we might as well jump into the deep end. So far, throughout this video, you've been seeing footage from the original floppy version and the Sierra original CD-ROM version. The main difference between the two, besides voice acting, is the icon bar in the floppy version. For some reason, it has two walk icons. Why? Fuck if I know. The one on the left lets you control Graham with the keyboard, same as you could in earlier King's Quest games, whereas the other one lets you point somewhere on the screen with the mouse and Graham will then find his own way over there. I have no idea why anyone would choose to play with the keyboard controls. I did, and it's terrible. It doesn't make things any easier or faster, and every once in a while Graham will just get stuck on some invisible barrier and refuse to move anywhere unless you switch over to the other walk icon. I guess they left it in because they were worried some people who had played the previous games would miss being able to steer him around with the arrow keys, but when it was time to release the game on CD-ROM, they wisely came to their senses and just removed the option entirely. And yeah, there's some other minor differences, like a bunch of the dialogue got rewritten, and these close-ups of the animals talking were changed, and you can't have subtitles on at the same time as the voices, because who would ever need closed captioning when the audio is this crystal clear? I'm Queen Beatrice, kind sir. I wish to thank you ever so much for saving our hive from the claws of that horrible bear. This was also during that wonderful early 90s time when Sierra would create separate versions of their games in 16-color EGA for people who didn't have a 256-color VGA card. With later games, Sierra would just release one version and have a special graphics driver that automatically downscaled the graphics to 16 colors if your computer couldn't run the proper version of the game, but this 16-color version of King's Quest V was actually sold separately, so you had to really pay attention when you were at the store that you didn't accidentally pick up the wrong version. And these aren't just downscaled graphics, a lot of these assets were really drawn especially for the 16 color version. And I'm a sucker for these kinds of alternate versions, but there's nothing more alternate than King's Quest V for the Nintendo Entertainment System. Yeah, you heard me right, there's King's Quest V for the NES. And it's just as horrible an idea as you think it is. I played through the entirety of this abomination, and it was a nightmare. For one, it still has a mouse cursor, but you're using the D-pad to move it around. And the game doesn't pause while you're doing this. I don't know if you can tell where I'm going with this, but if you didn't already hate this throwing a boot at the cat puzzle before, I can guarantee you will now. Especially if you're playing this on original hardware, which thank fuck I wasn't. I don't know how I ever would have gotten through this without the modern comfort of emulator save states and rewinds, where I can just zip back to any place in the playthrough and pick it up from there. If you're playing this on a real NES, you would get two save slots. Two! For a game with this many dead ends and walking dead scenarios, you might as well be pissing in people's faces. But it gets worse. There's no battery in the cartridge, so those two save games only exist as long as you have the cart in the machine and it's powered on. So if you have to turn off the console for whatever reason, or if the power goes out, those save games are gone. Not to worry though, you can always enter this 15-digit password key to get back to roughly where you left off. That's assuming you wrote it down, of course. Good fucking Christ. 
I mean, one part of me is super impressed that they somehow squeezed all of King's Quest V down onto a 512 kilobyte cartridge for an 8-bit system that was already being superseded by a successor, the Super Nintendo, at the time of its release. And another part of me is just really, really glad this wasn't under the Christmas tree when I was growing up, because everything about this just screams terrible idea. I mean, just look at it. Look at it. What the fuck is this anyway? It looks like someone smeared diarrhea over a NES dev kit and forced it to sing and dance. It is by far one of the ugliest NES games I've ever seen. I think it has something to do with how the NES draws graphics using tile sets, so they were effectively building these backgrounds out of sprite Legos or some shit. The point is, it looks like turd and plays like one. Anyway, with this terrifyingly awful rendition of the ending theme, so also ends my adventures of playing King's Quest V. It is a technical marvel that looks and sounds beautiful, if you're not playing it on an 8-bit breadbox, that is. But it's also an affront to every game design standard you can think of. It has tons of Walking Dead scenarios, a shitload of obtuse moon logic puzzles, a handful of aggravating RNG bullshit where the outcome is entirely predicated on a virtual dice roll, and the worst part of it is the story. It's just so underwhelmingly uninteresting. Even the game itself doesn't feel like it deserves a proper ending. It just teleports this dude in to clear up the whole mess so we can all go back to our lives and pretend this never happened. King's Quest V feels like the series went into a deep depression, but is in abject denial of it. It can only muster the barest of bare-bones effort to challenge you intellectually, or to tell an interesting and cohesive narrative, and it seems to just secretly wish that you'd stop playing so it can curl up in bed and quietly hope it dies in its sleep. And as such, I don't actually hate King's Quest V, I'm actually kinda worried about it. I hope it gets the help it needs. But I don't hate King's Quest in general, I'm really fascinated by these games. It's interesting to me to see how they all seem to embody different mindsets. King's Quest I was like an infant, stumbling around its world on a quest of self-discovery, trying everything and anything to see if something would stick. King's Quest II was like the 60s Woodstock of adventure games, it was like a free-for-all mindfuck that just wanted to party and get laid. King's Quest III was cynical and nihilistic, it was like the teenage goth version of King's Quest that wore mom's eyeliner and fishnet stockings on its arms and wrote Nietzsche quotes in its diary, and King's Quest IV was just a cauldron of spite and hatred that delighted in the misery of its surroundings. And now we have King's Quest V, which just seems like it doesn't even want to be here, and it's just quietly hoping everyone will go away and leave it alone. So that's what I'll do. Thanks so much for watching. Please have a look at my Patreon if you haven't already, and please go follow me on twitch.tv slash spacequesthistorian, where I livestream my playthroughs of these games. And also have a look at my Bandcamp page over at spacequesthistorian.bandcamp.com, because most of the music you hear in these videos are reorchestrations of these games' soundtracks, and you can buy those soundtracks over there. So, I hope you've enjoyed this video on King's Quest V, Absinthe Makes Your Pee Go Green. I'll see you for King's Quest VI, air today, pun tomorrow, and until next time, around the Chrono Stream. Bye!